Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. All right, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. Today is Tuesday, November 19th. And on with this week's show, which we're entitling Power Play, we've got the latest on Pacific Gas and Electric, better known as PG&E, which faces a summer deadline to exit bankruptcy. We've got Maria Monte here in New York to explain about that. And then moving on, we've got Patrick Ferguson, also here in New York, talking about the latest in with JEA and the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, better known as MIAG, as they continue their legal battle associated with the Vogel Nuclear Project. And finally, head of municipal research, Greg Clark is here as well in New York, talking about his report on urban school districts in a research analysis report. So I'd like to welcome everyone, and let's start with Maria. How are you today? I'm well, Young. Thank you. How are you? Good. So let's talk about PG&E and the latest, and with the summer deadline, tell us all about your story. There are a lot of issues that must be addressed regarding PG&E in the bankruptcy case and outside of it, including whether PG&E should be split apart in favor of public power and how PG&E can address the multi-billion dollar problem of their dilapidated infrastructure. The bankruptcy is incredibly intense and complicated made even more so by the fact that California is in the middle of its wildfire season, forcing PG&E and other utilities to implement public safety power shutoffs. Try saying that five times (laughs) fast. PSPS are intended to prevent wildfires caused by equipment. For example, the wires in the wind connecting with debris and sparking a wildfire. So they turn off the electricity, and this affects millions of customers. And as you can imagine, folks are upset by that. I'm sure they're very upset in California. So, and is that when the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, called them to Sacramento, correct? And I think they he threatened a state takeover at that time. Yeah, earlier this month, and that was prompted by public disgust throughout all of this. And there were several wildfires being fought simultaneously at that point, including the Kincaid fire. And so Newsom brought stakeholders to the Capitol the following week for mediation, in addition to the mediation going on throughout the bankruptcy process. And he also said that if the utility isn't out of bankruptcy by a statutory deadline, June 30th, 2020, the state would need to explore a takeover of the utility. The June 30th deadline was put in place by some legislation, AB 1054, and approved earlier this year for all of California's investor-owned utilities, establishing an insurance fund to help the utility finance compensation for victims of future wildfires, which is intended to prevent any bankrupt any further bankruptcies of investor-owned utilities. And basically what all of that means is if they're not out of bankruptcy by that point, they don't have access to that fund technically, and that fund is a very critical piece of their whatever bankruptcy exit plan PG&E comes up with. So here's a big question, Maria. Can the state of California or any municipality take over PG&E? 
Yes, but it seems like an unlikely outcome for many reasons, including the fact that PG&E doesn't want to sell. And this will be a multi-billion dollar acquisition, and does a public entity really want to acquire an asset that's in need of billions in investments to operate safely within the state of California? For some municipalities, the answer is yes, and the state is also exploring how to make this option work as well. So it sounds like this uh, probably may not be a great purchase after all. They have a lot of work to do. Uh, PG&E has not made all of the improvements it needs to make for its equipment to operate safely. And to get there, they need to invest billions. And this is a company in bankruptcy. They don't really have access to the capital needed to facilitate these repairs. It's an extraordinarily challenging problem. Beyond the money, they need to figure out the most effective way to do this, and their job is to deliver power and electricity safely, and that job has been made more complicated by the increasing intensity of the wildfires. The repairs they need to make are costly, and PG&E has previously estimated that making all of the necessary repairs could cost between 75 and $150 billion to complete. So, Maria, what would, let's say, a state takeover or a public option offer? There's an argument that PG&E is too big, that the aggregate service area is too large and impossible to maintain, and that PG&E is focused on shareholder outcomes instead of making improvements to equipment and serving customers. Essentially, a public utility could be more cost-effective. The big argument is that they would have access to to the tax-exempt market. Um, But there's a downside for the municipality or cooperative that would acquire the utility. They'd be on the hook for the repairs needed to the equipment. Further, if individual municipalities break away, and let's use San Francisco and San Jose as examples because they've been vocal uh, proponents of this, they're two wealthy service areas not necessarily experiencing the same equipment malfunctions we've observed in other communities, and they're less prone to wildfire risk. If they break off, it'll harm other ratepayers who still use PG&E for electric power, and that's why a state takeover has entered the conversation, but it's hard to make the business case to pg the bankruptcy judge, the regulator, and all of the other stakeholders in the bankruptcy, as well as the California state legislature, and the list goes on of all the people who need to be on board for this to work. Whatever happens next, it's a very heavy lift and immensely challenging to handle all of these complex issues. Very complex indeed. And let's remind people of the statutory deadline, June 30th of 2020. Yes, they must be out of bankruptcy by then. Okay. Well, thank you, Maria, for your work. Okay, let's keep on with the uh, public power theme. Patrick, how are you doing today? Good, good. Let's talk about, and you've been covering actually uh, JEA and MEAG from the beginning, I think after you started here, so it's been your uh, it's been your project or your story for a while. So let's talk about um, what's been going. Give us the latest. Yeah, about like a little bit over a year I've been covering this. So um, late last week, uh, Judge Mark Cohen, he's the judge uh, presiding over the over a case between JEA and MEAG in the U.S. District Courts, a federal district court for the Northern District of Georgia. So he sat down with JEA Mieg and had a, a telephone call to address several motions that were submitted over the past few weeks. Um, 
basically over the past couple of weeks, we've seen just a slew or a fury of motions, both from JEA and MIEG, uh, to get this case going. And kind of what they've been arguing about are the terms or the scope of getting the um, of, of defining the case and and seeing it through. So a little a little primer on JEA and MIEG. I know we've covered this a lot over those last year, but um, MIEG is a um, owner of the Vogel Nuclear uh, Expansion Project in Burke County, Georgia, and JEA is one of the, the largest offtake partners uh, MIEG, uh, MIEG has there. And in September 2018, they both sued each other over a co- over that contract, offtake contract, uh, PPA, a power purchase agreement. And they've been since uh, litigating in, in Florida and uh, Georgia courts um, over that contract. Um, so it's kind of interesting enough. Both the discovery period for the case is set to end the twenty on the twenty eighth of May two thousand twenty. But in these motions from JEA Mieg uh, over the past few weeks, they both say they don't need that time. Uh, they're both ready to go. It's basically saying, look, there's no more evidence to gather. Uh, let's uh, let's get this done. Um, the problem was Mieg, Mieg filed a motion asking the courts to determine a judgment of pleadings of the case. Um, so this is a, defines the scope of what the parties are actually arguing, what's actually on the table. And JEA argues that Mieg was using this uh, certain this certain um, uh, type of motion uh, to circumvent uh, JEA's claims. So JEA claims that the PPA is not enforceable under Florida constitutional law. But Mieg was, they say Mieg was trying to use a previous case where a federal district court did say the PPA was enforceable. And so we, there was a, uh, a slew of these motions going back and forth, JEA trying to stop Mieg, uh, JEA trying to uh, press through with their own um, terms to get this case heard on kind of a broad uh, set of, of legal uh, statutes. So basically what Judge Cohen did was put the brakes on. He was like, look, he's like, we're going to stop for a little bit. And both JEA and MIA, you guys have to sit down and come up with a plan. First, a report of what has been established and also a plan of going forward since we don't need this discovery period anymore. So then uh, both these two parties have to submit this plan by December 15th. Kind of sounds like whiplash, back and forth, different courts, and but basically, the judges said, "Hey, you know, let, let's let's get together for this." Yeah, and that's how it's been. For, I mean, for the last year, since you know, we've had two different court cases, and actually, there's some other court cases too from some environmental parties. But two different court cases, both in Florida, and uh, Florida and Georgia. You know, some of the like the uh, the appellate courts are involved, but then they've all, and then these cases have got combined, and there's been just a lot of a lot of back and forth. All right, so let's. Uh, uh, move on a little bit with JEA and their uh, possible sales. So all these motions, this flurry of motions, do they have anything to do with JEA moving f- towards selling its business overall? Yes, as we know, so this this last summer, uh, JEA uh, solicited bids for uh, utilities and, other, and power companies to buy uh, JEA's assets. And this also includes their, their water and sewer or, or a portion of those assets. Um, so JEA executives have come out a few times 
uh, and said, you know, the cost to finance this Vogel project and purchase energy from the Vogel project from the from the next 20 years uh, would be a significant financial burden on the utility. And so it's it's difficult to see how a buyer could come to the table and you know be ready to purchase JEA without knowing right. the, the outcome un- of this of this court case. The uncertainty, yeah. Yeah, the uncertainty is a lot of a lot of the cost could have to do around you know what what's going on. So it makes sense that the JEA, it's like they want to if they do indeed want to sell, um, that they would g- have to uh, uh, finalize this uh, legal process. Um, you know, this last week, uh, Georgia Power says the majority owner of the Vogel plant said that one of the units is two months behind schedule. And this is what JEA executives have said for a while. You know, it's, there's a lot of risk associated with this project. If there's more cost overruns, more delays, more cost overruns. You know, we remember this, the price tag of the Vogel nuclear uh, expansion project is now close to $28 billion. So that's up from about $14 billion in Almost two, double. Right, in 2009. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it it would it would make sense that JEA wanna wants to conclude this. I was reading local media this week, and so JEA was set to have a board meeting uh, right now, mm-hmm. and they canceled the board meeting. And I, I, there's a few quips on the uh, local media saying, "Oh, I guess there's nothing to talk about." <laughs> but uh, so. Some, some. Can, can I point out an irony here? <laughs> sure, Greg. PG&E, uh, its customers or the state, uh, PG&E is an investor-owned utility. Everybody thinks the salvation is in going municipal. JEA is a municipal utility, which is in trouble. Yeah. Mm. Everybody thinks the solution is going private. <laughs> right. They yeah. can't both be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a take on this? or? Well, I don't think it's... Uh, the the case that private or public is necessarily a solution. I think it's to some degree the nature of utilities and monopolies. If you got a monopoly, things are probably going to some decisions are going to be made that are not the right decisions. Now, how you solve that? Electric utilities are natural monopolies. I think unless you go off the grid, but uh, I don't have a solution. Okay, well, just raising the irony. Definitely a good point to point out. So let's finish up with Patrick. I've got one last question for you. So going back to the sale price, where are we in terms of that? Yeah, so JEA is still evaluating bids. Uh, it's interesting. So the city council has kind of stepped up a bit. They uh, they have approved funds to hire their own legal counsel. So JEA also has, of course, legal and financial counsel, uh, which the city is allowed to use. But the city decided it's like, we want some funds to hire our own just in case so we can uh, we can eval- evaluate um, uh, what JEA is seeing. They've also said you know we're going to dig deeper into the economic analysis of JEA's sale. You know, so in the spring JEA came out with a series of reports saying, look, our business is not going to be profitable. That's the reason why we have to sell. And this is kind of what maybe some of what Greg was saying, that the reasons why JEA said we have to sell is because we're going to have these innovations and in renewable energy and our business, you know, the we um, uh, energy prices are going down despite our customer base growing and we're just not going to be profitable. But in a broad sense, I mean, this is somewhat true of just any utility in any private market, you know, with advances in technology. And so the city council's vowed to, you know, it's like we're going to look into that a lot more. And then we've also seen some uh, city council members become 
um, kind of more, I said, irked, annoyed, maybe angry at times, just because the process has gone uh, so fast in the in their eyes. Um, you know, selling JEA isn't a new idea. This has been around for for a couple years. And last year, I want to say last October, the city council voted to say, "Look, if you're going to sell uh, JEA, you have to have a super majority." And so that's going to set the bar a little bit higher. So we need 12 out of the 19 members uh, of the city council to approve uh, a sale of more than 10% of JEA's assets. And then also, you know, the public, so it's actually Duval County, would have to approve the sale uh, as well. And I believe that's a simple majority. So politically, we're still uh, quite, or it seems we're quite a bit away from any action there. Okay, very interesting. Well, thank you very much, Patrick, for your work. Okay, let's uh, move on to Mr. Greg Clark. How are you doing, Greg? I'm good, Jan. How are you? Good. So let's talk about um, a report you wrote uh, that focuses on five school districts. Tell us a little bit more, including why you chose these particular, these specific five borrowers. Well, the idea behind this report uh, originated during a meeting with one of our subscribers who said that when he wanted to compare the relative risks of large school districts, it was difficult with the sources that he usually consulted to do so. So we chose five districts to compare and added the criteria that the districts have declining enrollment. Uh, That's frequently associated with financial stress because of uh, state aid formulas. And that they also be rated by Moody's in the A rating range or lower. The uh, three, three of these districts were already in our Ion Muni's report, which for those interested in more about that report, we discussed two weeks ago in the Muni Lowdown. And to find two more to add to those three, we consulted a list of the largest school districts in the U.S. provided by the National Center for Education Statistics, which is part of the U.S. Department of Education. So what were the five that you ended up with? From IM Unis, we already had Los Angeles Unified School District, Chicago Public Schools, and Philadelphia School District. And the two that we added from the the list of largest school districts were Tucson and Cleveland. And what did you find in these? um... Well, the enrollment declines uh, over a five-year period ranged from 1.9% in Cleveland to 9.3% in Tucson. but. Looking at this statistic, we realized over only five years doesn't tell the whole story. It's difficult to get longer-term comparable data, but we did find that between 2001 and 2019, Cleveland's uh, the Cle- enrollment in the Cleveland schools declined by 48.3%, which was, to me, a stunning number. So, Greg, what do you think is causing these declines? Well, it's hard to always... Uh, pinpoint exactly what is going on. Some some borrowers are more upfront in their uh, explanations than others about the causes. But in each of the five cases, there are more students who are enrolling in charter schools or using vouchers to attend private schools. What? Uh, let me ask you one last question. What were your other findings in the, in your report? Well, the reliance on local revenues, which basically means reliance on property taxes, ranged from 14% in Los Angeles to 47% in Chicago. And as you might guess, with in Los Angeles, somebody has to compensate for that low local contribution, and that uh, in, 
In Los Angeles, they had the highest percentage of revenues derived from state aid at 75%. There was also a direct correlation between district size based on enrollment and measured by enrollment, I should say, and the percent of the budget needed to pay debt service. Five districts is too small a sample size to come to any firm conclusions, but maybe there's an enterprising PhD student who's listening today who needs an idea for his or her dissertation. One other finding was that in each of the five districts, median household income, MHI for short, when you compare that to the state's MHI, ranged from only 53% in Cleveland to 86% in Chicago. So each district by that measure is poorer than the state as a whole. Uh, With Cleveland's low uh, ratio, 53%, they had the highest percentage of families with incomes below poverty level, 48%. And uh, regarding pensions, employees of four of the five districts were covered by state pension plans. Chicago is the one which is not. Uh, Its teacher's plan in Chicago is only 45% funded, and its non-teaching employees are covered by a City of Chicago plan, which is only 23% funded. For the four districts that have state pensions, state-level pensions, funding of those state plans ranged from a low of 54% in Pennsylvania to 77% in Ohio. So... There was, uh, this was an interesting project. I'm glad that our subscriber mentioned this to us because uh, I think it's probably, it was probably interesting to our subscribers. I hope so anyway. And I definitely found it interesting. Well, it definitely does. And to our listeners out there, if you are a subscriber, please uh, contact us because you never know when something you're inquiring about could be on the mini lowdown. So thank you, Greg. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Maria. And thank you to our producer, Anthony Phillips. Everyone here is here in New York in the house. What, what? Sorry, please forgive me. <laughs> anyway, uh, hope, um, thanks again for listening to Mini Lowdown. We hope you have a good day and take care out there. Thanks for listening to the Mini Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.